0: Welcome back to For Fintech's Sake. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, your host by night and U.S. content director at Money 2020 by day and often night. We have fun. Speaking of Money 2020, we are bringing some basement tapes this week. We are bringing some content from Money 2020 last year featuring some impressive humans. Why are we doing this right now? There's been a lot of hemming and hawing over the job of regulators and the job of policymakers and the job that these regulators and policymakers are doing in the midst of this constantly shifting, insane world that we're living in right now when it comes to banking and everything else, honestly, crypto, name it, in fintech. It felt like the perfect time to kind of go back and pull one of the conversations that happened at money 2020 last year to the forefront and kind of share some of the, some of the mental models that came out of it. So last year at the show, Allie McCloskey, a good friend of mine, one of the best podcast hosts in the world, I believe, um, who is now at Clocktower Ventures, was the host of Wharton Fintech Podcast, sat down with Caitlin Assereau, who's at the New York Department of Financial Services, the NYDFS, John Pitts, who functions in the policy world at Plaid, two great thinkers in Caitlin and John, this conversation really covered a lot of evergreen topics and if you want to dig into my version of the evergreen topics there's going to be a newsletter coming along with this that's coming out saturday morning um and you can read that there but listening to the full conversation and getting a sense of caitlin and john's perspective on everything speaks very true today even though this was recorded in october of last year so without further ado I turn it over to Allie McCloskey, Caitlin Azro, and John Pitts.
1: All right, we're going to start by moving our chairs like a little (laughs) bit closer. Yes.
2: I love that plan. We're about to get pretty intimate with our discussion, so we might as well start. By, uh, well,
1: and we want to start with regulators and safety. companies being yes. close to each being other, right? Intertwined. And yeah. I'm in the
2: center, as we prefer to be. Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. As Rachel mentioned, this is a super special episode of the Fourfin Seek oh. podcast, which is typically hosted by Zach Pettit, who is running around making sure this event is as successful as it could ever be. So huge shout out to Zach Pettit for letting us giving us the stage here to have an incredibly dynamic and insightful conversation about fintech policy and regulation and what's coming down the pipe and how we can sort of bridge the language gap um, that sometimes exists between the operating side and the regulator side. So couldn't be more thrilled to be joined by two passionate policy pioneers, I would say, in many respects. Um, And so I'll 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 hand it over to you, Caitlin, um, to give a little bit of your background and then John um, we'll head over to you as well. But thank you all for joining us. Excited that this conversation will live in evergreen fashion on the For Fintech Sake podcast, um, but really excited to sort of, again, dig into bridging that language gap. And we have sort of the perspective of regulatory bodies as well as the perspective of big fintech. So um, that naturally have a lot in common. And I think that's sort of a big misconception at times is that we're all playing for the same team. So thanks for being with us. And Caitlin, would love for you to talk about what your work
3: yeah, thanks, Ali. Uh, great to be here. I actually tried to get into this room earlier today, but it was too popular, so glad I can be here now. Uh, so I serve as Executive Deputy Superintendent of Research and Innovation for the New York State Department of Financial Services. Uh, huge title, but what that means is um, I lead a team of uh, economists who do research on kind of the financial conditions of New York State to inform kind of our risk monitoring of banks, insurance companies, and licensed financial services. I run an innovation policy team that researches everything from artificial intelligence to buy now, pay later and everything in between. Um, And they help kind of develop guidance and new regulations for the state. Uh, And then finally, I'm responsible for regulating virtual currency in New York State. So that's the BitLicense and Limited Purpose Trust Charters. Um, Prior to this, I was a senior fintech advisor for the Federal Reserve System. And prior to that, I spent time kind of advising early-stage fintechs and doing consulting and consumer advocacy work.
1: Uh, And I'm John Pitts. I'm the head of policy for Plaid. I have a much shorter title (laughs) than than Caitlin. Uh, And prior to that, I was with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Uh, where we dealt with a lot of the innovative stuff happening in financial services uh, and dealt with the impact on consumers, both the great impacts that some of the innovations had and some of the risks to consumers uh, as the markets changed and new products and services came along. So... Uh, Really happy to be here. Really excited for this conversation.
3: Yeah. And I'll say something really interesting is I actually met John when I was outside of regulation. And I think I was coming to the CFPB to look at innovation office hours and to learn about the CFPB. And then I went to the Federal Reserve and John went outside of the regulatory perimeter. So we've known each other on both sides of the fence for many years.
2: (laughs) Well, I think that'll be a theme that runs true throughout this conversation, which is that this is all a very interconnected web. And whether you think you're sort of under the regulatory umbrella, you know, it's just a matter of when you're going to be pulled under and sort of how we all work together is very important. So let's kick off there. Let's talk about sort of culturally how we got here. Um, So I'd be curious from your perspectives, you know, why is it, you know, sometimes hard to bridge that gap from the regulatory perspective to the sort of operator perspective? Like, why are those two flavors at all? Um, So I'd be curious, maybe John, you can kick us off and just tell us, you know, through, through the lens of which you see this at Plaid, um, why, why, is this a, why is this a difficult topic?
1: Yeah, so sure. It's a great question. And I want to give uh, Joanne Barefoot full credit for this because she was the first person who expressed this. And I've completely co-opted it as the right way of understanding this dynamic, which is uh, there's two really different cultural incentive structures, right? If on the fintech side or any sort of uh, startup, Really, what you're focused on is the upside. Like what's the maximal way in which this can succeed and be great? Um, and when you're focused exclusively on that, often the downside risk is sort of if you're you can't focus on it, right? Because it sabotages your ability to be successful. Regulators have almost in some ways the inverse incentive system. No one has ever gotten a bonus at a regulator for like, the success of a regulated entity under their jurisdiction that I know of. I could be wrong. That There might be something I don't know about. Um, but their number one mandate is to ensure that nothing goes wrong. And so what you have a, is a culture of everything goes right intersecting with what if something goes wrong. And that means you, if you're not careful and paying attention, can be speaking completely different languages to each other about the same thing and that can create a cultural conflict that makes it impossible to actually understand each other's point of view and meaningfully engage, even if you have the same objective at the end of the day. I don't know, Caitlin, have you seen that also in terms of the dynamic with uh, startups versus regulators and how they engage with each other?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have, you know, less experience kind of in a startup, but definitely working with them for, for many years. I would say, you know, I think what I can share is more of what i found kind of trying to be an innovative force inside of a regulator and and that kind of risk aversion, which is just like in our DNA and, and by our legal mandate, we're very much focused on this is the, the legal remit that we have and that we have to achieve. And that remit is not necessarily about, you know, th- bringing product to market. That's the job of, you know, innovators and, and companies. It's about externalities and thinking about risk and, and playing the long game, really. Um, I think there's that. I think, you know, we also have to be in, in regulatory space, very deliberative. So we can't move fast for a number of reasons. You think it's because of its, you know, bureaucracy and layers that exist. But really, that's not the driver. I think for me, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what is the third degree of what's going to happen if I take action. I don't want to move markets. I don't want to pick winners and losers. Instead, I want the market to do that, but I want to focus on externalities. And so if I have, you know, looked at a vendor, I can't put that vendor on a pedestal and that will change the market for that vendor. I can't pick business models that are going to win or lose. And so we play things out over and over again, probably too far down the road, but it means we take a long time.
2: Yeah, I think that's really helpful context. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I think folks understand this cultural issue, but I'd be curious from both of your perspectives, what inning are we in in solving it? So if you were to give a letter grade to sort of the overall ecosystem or talk about places where you think we can really start to, you know, shift that mind share and get closer, you know, how far away are we?
3: Uh, that's a hard one. I mean, I would say at least we're playing the game. <laughs> like, I think that's a win. We're in it together. I think we've seen now, you know, all almost all regulators have an innovation arm. We have office hours. We're, we're engaging. We've seen action. You know, we can still argue how fast or slow that is. Um, but I think it's going to always be an evolving process. Like I would say from my perspective, I was looking this up the other day, like DFS You know, the original New York State Department of Banking was started, I think, in 1851. So I have a long way to go to push innovation inside of such a legacy organization. I'm basically building a startup inside one of the oldest institutions in the United States. Um, And so, you know, the patience on both sides, right? Patience for the innovators to come to us and patience for us to keep
1: evolving. So I'm going to go a little harder than that even and say we shouldn't close that gap. Right, Not not all the way, because the different incentives actually do add value to each other. The check and balance. The the (laughs) check and balance, (laughs) right? Because you need to have that sort of upside view in order to drive innovation in the market. And you need to have that risk aversion view in order to protect people. And at the end of the day, what we're really talking about here is both sides are trying to serve the consumer, right? That's who we actually care about is that consumer. We care about them having better products, cheaper products, products that work better for them and also product where they are not going to get harmed using that product. And I do not think that that's a monoculture thing to choose and to to go after. So you actually want a little bit of that beneficial friction between the two worldviews in order to get to that right outcome, because anyone who thinks that they are right 100% of the time should not be in the business of building financial products for consumers. Um, I think the challenge then becomes, how do you make sure that with those two cultures, they're effectively communicating with each other. Right. And across that gap, what I often see is the default thing, which I think people like Caitlin have really done a lot to break down is this assumption of, oh well, they just don't understand us. Right. And so let me let me, you know, be critical of my side here first, and then uh, then Caitlin, if you want, you can be critical of the government side. The number of times where I hear people who are uh, in fintech with an innovative prob- uh, product, say, the government doesn't understand what we're doing. As if that's the government's fault. It, it is not. If, if, if the government does not understand Plaid, that is my fault. A hundred percent my fault. It is my job to transparently explain what we are doing to the regulators to make sure they deeply understand it. And I think On the other side, it is the regulator's responsibility to be able to do that same outreach and say, it is our responsibility to explain our mandate and our regulations to entities, even if they are new and even if we don't fully understand what they do. And that empathetic attitude of communication of it's my responsibility to explain this to someone who has a different culture is the actual key. And I think we actually are getting pretty far along in in getting that bridge culture in place.
3: Yeah, I would agree 100 percent. I mean, that that that, you know, really healthy balance of the two sides of of kind of the going fast and positive focus and then the the risk aversion. Um, I would say that, you know, I I think I, I agree totally assume positive intent. I think that, you know, what I'm focused on with my team right now is, you know, when you meet with your companies that, that you're regulating, right, and they don't understand you and there's friction there because you're saying the same thing, literally. They're, <laughs> they're saying the same thing and they're using different words for it. And then my team comes back and they're like, they're not responsive, right? They're not responding to it. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like, they're not not responding to you. They are saying something. What are they saying? And so I think it's our responsibility to listen as regulator and, you know, appreciate John, you know, being that communicator on the side of tech. And I think it's important. Um, but I do agree that, like, I think a lot when I meet with companies about how I'm, I'm probably providing a really different perspective than their investors uh, or folks who are telling them to move really, really fast or, or to kind of focus on different revenues. Um, you know, we're kind of very focused on the consumer, very focused on that long-term view. Uh, and hopefully that helps a more resilient kind of uh, company to develop out of it.
2: There's so much to unpack there. I'm not sure which direction <laughs> we should start with. So I guess let's start with the, the more positive fluffy side, if you will, and maybe you guys can do a little compliment to trading off of, you know, what are some best practices you're seeing, um, Caitlin, on the fintech side and then John on the regulator side to, again, sort of speak in, in the right language and, and sort of bridge that gap. So I'd be curious, like, what are you seeing in the ecosystem? What do you want to see more of? Um, what have you sort of learned in your seats, given you both spent quite a long time in, in sort of this industry? So what can we, what have you learned from each other um, and what do you want to see more of?
3: Yeah, so I'll, I'll do a, plain, a shameless plug for for John in that, you know, I, I've had, you know, really having people in John's role that, that kind of can speak and, and can be that API or that conduit uh, between the two functions uh, has been very helpful. Obviously, it's not, you know, necessary all the time, but it, it is really helpful to kind of have you know, regulatory affairs, a a communications side. Um, I will just say from the the development side, you know, I have seen just a lot of need for some of, we call it blocking and tackling, Uh, you know, just committees, governance programs, policies and procedures that you use um, that I know that sounds very trite, uh, but it's something that's very basic in banking and that we've really seen a lot on the fintech side and the virtual currency side, from my perspective, just need growth, uh, you know, that I expect you to have an audit committee. Uh, and I expect you to have a cyber policy.
2: Sorry, just before we get to you, John, I'd love to just drill into that even a little bit more, Caitlin. What does it have to be folks that have worked at the CFPB that have now gone to fintech. Like, What is the profile that you need um, or that you want to see on the fintech side? And you gave a few things of, you know, want to see that you have a cyber policy, but what's sort of the ideal org structure or who are you typically facing off with? What's sort of the profile? What do you need? What are you looking for?
3: Yeah, so I'll give the, the typical regulator answer to that and say it's not my job to define that, right? I think it's about, you know, really how does that fit within your company? I think what I can ask for is a communicator in your company. I can ask for governance systems, policies, and procedures, but I think what the regulator is always going to do, which I know is very frustrating, is going to turn it back to the company and say exactly what does that look like for your business model, for your culture, and for your market. Right helpful. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so facing now government and giving a compliment to government, which are there's a lot that you can give because the last 10 years have been I would say a fairly incredible shift in how government has thought about innovation, um, largely driven by the consumer, right? Consumers have shifted in this direction and government is following them very, very quickly, I think faster than government has in the past. And one of the most important ones has been agencies introducing an office of innovation. They have different names in different places, but I think that has been a fairly ubiquitous thing. One thing Caitlin has done that I think advances that concept beyond what I've seen other places doing, is uh, not having that Office of Innovation be a dead end. Because in some places, that is sort of what it became. It became like this safe bubble where any company could come talk to the regulator, and the conversation never left that bubble. Well, that's not actually that useful if the people who are really engaging on the policy issues or the legal issues aren't inside that bubble. And so one of the things that Caitlin and DFS have done is at least from my perspective, broken that silo very effectively so that when you talk with the innovation folks, you also know that it's getting down to the line examiners and the senior policy folks, and it's not just a dead-end cul-de-sac in engaging with the regulator. And the tricky balance to strike is sometimes if you're going in for your first meeting with a regulator, meeting with someone who might be like bringing an enforcement action against you can be very scary and very intimidating. And can cause you to make what I think is the wrong strategic choice, which is, I'm just not going to engage. I'll wait until they come and reach out to me, right? That's a mistake. Every time it's a mistake. Um, But if you have the super friendly place to go and it's so friendly that it never challenges you or never goes anywhere and doesn't penetrate the agency, you've also made a mistake, right? And so that's what I think is, is happening in these next generation of innovation offices is this idea of... Actually, the entire agency is an innovation office. It's not just one or two people in a special role. It is reorienting the agency to be able to internalize that innovation and really come to grips with it because the market is moving so quickly that you have to. So uh, that's one of the things that I've seen that's been really stand out from what DFS is doing.
3: Yeah, I I will say, like, I appreciate the opportunity to kind of talk about maybe some of the inner workings of that translation because you don't see it. I think when when you come and meet with a regulator, right, a lot of times it feels one sided. Uh, regulators don't communicate a lot. They don't share out a lot because we're not able to from, again, kind of a legal confidentiality perspective, um, but we're taking it in. And then I'm in the background basically saying, how do I get this to my research team? How do I get this to my supervision team? How do I get this to my policy team, to my executive team so that they truly understand it? And I will say it's it's challenging. My line examiners and the ones that I worked with from the Federal Reserve to New York State, um, you know, they're so focused on the risk here and now, right? They're in an exam, they're deep into it. And so I have to come to them and I have to say, look, let's focus on something that might happen in 10 years. might happen in two, but it could happen in 10. And we really want you to pay attention. And so, you know, I'm doing that work. I'm trying to do that work for you as you come in and talk to us. So I think that's just that keep communicating, keep giving me, you know, ways that I can push and and make the change inside.
2: Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. I mean, You'll you'll notice that the vantage point of my questions is trying to get really at the tactical sort of like what can we arm, you know, our listeners with as they go back to their organizations, which span, you know, fintechs, big techs, regulatory bodies, you know, financial sponsors and the like. And so I'd be curious, let's let's dig into sort of how we enable that information and data accumulation to permeate through your organizations. What you're both pretty big in sort of the content generation, you've you've written <laughs> A number of, you know, very very well established research pieces. John, you're very active, sort of on different, you know, mediums within the content space. So, what are the best avenues to make sure that we are permeating? You know, I love the way that you're talking about those functions as being the gateway to the rest of the organization. But how do you actually make sure that the puck doesn't stop in those safe spaces and it really does get, you know, b- becomes part of the DNA of the broader firm? Uh,
1: so, I guess I'm happy to start on that one. Um, A few things. So one, and we can talk about this a little bit later because I think this is a a good area. Understand that you will one day be in the regulatory perimeter, right? And, And decide that at the beginning because a lot of companies say, oh, I'm not regulated right now. And even if they go meet with the regulator, they don't internalize that this is a meeting not for today. It is a meeting for 10 years from now when they are your regulator, and when the regulation evolves around your business, because it's going to happen. Two, um, don't go in asking for permission. Caitlin touched on this a little bit before. Like The number of meetings I've seen back when I was at CFPB where someone would come in and say, "Like, here's a, lawyer a, a letter from our lawyers. right? We'd like to meet with you about this letter from our lawyers that says what we are doing is legal. Do you agree? No regulator is going to answer that question ever in the history of the world. Um, Or if they are going to answer that question, it's going to be after like an extensive no action letter process that's going to cost you a lot of money. And it's going to be a public answer that everyone gets to see. So assume you're going to be regulated. Don't ask for permission. But then to permeate things, you've got to come in with real market information that's valuable to the regulator. And that's not just like the glossy, easy stuff. It is Let them know the things that you are seeing in the market that are like real challenges and real things to wrestle with. Because ultimately, to some degree, at least the way I think about it, part of my value to the regulator is I have information that they don't have. And if I am unwilling to share that information, I am not valuable in that relationship. If I am willing to share information about what I'm seeing in terms of consumer behavior, market dynamics, new product development, and share it credibly and honestly, then I am giving them something that's useful because it helps them be better at their jobs. And that's what really gets this, at least from my experience, permeated into the agency is, oh, we didn't know this before. Like, this is something that everyone needs to know because this is, we need to know this to do our job. Um, and the thing that really helps with that is the fourth point, which is repetition. If you think you are going into one meeting with, like, Caitlin's team and you're like, well, done, check that box. <laughs> Like, we've innovated, cool, we're good. Like, that's not the reality. And this goes back to the first point. You will be regulated one day. Play the long game. You are there as a repeat customer of that agency. Have that in your mind and go back again and again and again, always with something that is useful, and that's usually going to be information. And as long as it is honest, you are going to start getting that traction.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll start with maybe one piece of advice for, um, you know, innovators and then a switch to maybe any uh, on the regulatory community in terms of change inside. But I will say, you know, I think to John's point, um, you know, come with a different type of pitch or a different type of deck than you would for your <laughs> investors. We, we don't wanna hear your pitch. We want to hear the details of the risks and it's really hard to talk about them. And, and again, it's not my job. I do not wanna send you to enforcement. I will not to, to everything I can do unless you're like, here, I broke the law. Like, <laughs> there you go. Like, I'm not gonna do that. What I'm going to do and what we expect banks to do, right? Is to have risk management process talk to me about your risks and then talk to me about how you're managing them. That is a much deeper conversation that you can have with a regulator that shows them that you're ready to be in the perimeter. Than just like, again, here's my glossy deck about kind of, you know, how many consumers I'm going to touch. Um, so I just think, you know, shift that and and don't be scared of of the, the messiness that I'm sure is in your business because it's in all business, um, for the regulators, Uh, or for anybody in that community who wants to kind of, I mean, right, do change management inside and innovate inside of these companies or inside of these agencies. I mean, you need buy-in from the top. Absolutely. You need a leader who's not going to kind of put it in a box, right? Put like, oh, I have this innovation office. It's going to go over here. It's kind of a check mark, uh, but it's going to permeate it, I think when I was in consulting, we would say, you know, new business is everybody's business, right? We need a leader who's going to say innovation is everybody has to pay attention because otherwise I'm just a division on the side saying like, Hey, banking, you should innovate. Hey, insurance, you should innovate. Like I need my leader to to help me carry that water. Um, I would say patience uh, and and really like Understanding, right? Work with these examiners, these supervisors who many times have been in civil service, who have been in the regulatory community for their entire careers and have been providing a great service to all of us in keeping you know the financial system safe. so respect that, respect that knowledge and then see how you can leverage it for your own learning and, and your own kind of permeation. so there's lots more lessons, but those will be the ones I'll stop with. <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm curious if there's anything to drill into as it relates to New York State specifically, which is seen as an innovator, um, you know, by far and wide, you know, above some of the rest of, you know, at least the nation. So anything to learn from how New York is sort of being on the cutting edge of regulation that other states should sort of pay attention to?
3: Yeah. I mean, so it was one of the main things that honestly brought me to to state regulation, the ability to kind of my ability to move fast, as fast as you can in regulation and do things. Right. I can put out guidance. I can issue new regulations if I want. And I think that's really important. Um, so, you know, for New York State, I think we were forward leaning and really first mover on the bit license. So comprehensive virtual currency regulation that's not money transmission. Um, we also have our trust charter that's, you know, has that fiduciary element and kind of money um, money touching, fiat touching element of it. Um, and so I think, you know, what we're doing and what the superintendent is committed to is having as much transparency as possible um, and putting out guidance. And, and I think that's where we can move pretty quickly. I would also say New York and, you know, for any other state's You know, we have to balance, but it's really exciting to be a little bit closer to the competition side of um, regulation and to say, you know, we have a mandate that's to support the, you know, to support New York State, to support businesses in New York State, to support kind of revenue generation for the state. Uh, and we have a mandate to protect and serve consumers in terms of safety and soundness and protection. And so how do we really wrestle with those? Um, in some of the other kind of regulatory spaces I've been in, you know, it's kind of all safety and soundness, all protection and less on the competition side. Um, so I think, you know, states can really leverage that to, to be fast moving and really engage with the market.
1: Like can I give another compliment to, to New York DFS? And this, this is not sucking up, I <laughs> promise. But like, but one of the things you touched on a lot of the stuff that you all are doing to drive that innovation. But just the core existence of DFS, right? Like that was a recognition for those who don't know. And I'm not supposed to speak in acronyms because it like becomes opaque to normal humans, which I'm not. Um, but like, it used to be the New York Financial Services Regulator and the Insurance Regulator. And after the financial crisis, there was a recognition that like hey, insurance and financial services have blended so much that having them as two different categories doesn't make sense. Let's combine the regulator. And as we start getting into more innovative things like cryptocurrencies, like the average... So as someone who sits in D.C., I am watching the fight between the Commodities Future Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission about, like, who's the crypto regulator? The average consumer does not have any awareness of that fight, and does not know what it means for them to be CFTC or SEC regulated. And so one of the things that I think is really great about what DFS has done is said, like, hey, listen, if it's money and the consumer's money, like we're going to cover that. And that is not rigid. It is flexible and it has allowed you to do things like the crypto license and say, like, OK, as new things evolve, We're not going to treat them as completely new and needing a new regulator and off in a silo somewhere off to the side. We're going to bring it in. We're going to understand how it interrelates with other financial services, other insurance things, and we're going to have a holistic approach to doing it. And so I I think that's baked into the core infrastructure of New York State in a way that is not everywhere else, uh, that really gives you guys a leading advantage in dealing with new emerging issues.
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, for, you know, the major kind of policy wonks, which I assume, if again, you're in this room, maybe you are. Um, But, you know, I've been finding it really fascinating, the transition from federal regulation to state regulation, because I think exactly what John's saying, that the horizontal view that we have is really powerful. We don't have to look at kind of siloed markets regulation, consumer protection regulation, prudential regulation. Um, You know, is it a commodity? Is it a security? We can just say, you know, what is it doing is it a business activity that's financial in nature that we think consumers need to have protection around and we think there's stability considerations that we need to deal with and so i think you know not to kind of be too far on the federalism side but i think that's where you get down to really the interesting design of our country it's complex uh, and you know maybe it's not perfect all the time uh, but we do have that state regulatory system that allows for the horizontal oversight and a lot when we're thinking about virtual currency regulation and, you know, working closely with the Hill as we think about a federal framework is, you know, it's really hard to break apart these activities and regulate them in different places and then require these companies to be just, you know, just, you know, branch off all these subsidiaries that are doing kind of parts of a whole. And we just want to look across the whole thing. Um, And I think there's value in both. You know, we can go deep and vertical at the federal level and we can go horizontal and and see that breadth at the state
2: level. It sounds very first principles to have yeah. that flexibility. And really to to the point of both of your perspectives is just the consumer is supposed to win. And so anything that, you know, relates to them is really in your remit, which is really cool. I want to pivot and, and talk about Plaid's own sort of, you know, genesis and then and then progression as it relates to policy work. So to be curious, John, just give us a flavor of sort of your day-to-day, how this has progressed over time. You know, obviously Plaid, you know, when you joined was a very different sized company than it is now. So Talk to us about sort of that progression and what that means in terms of how you are are working with regulatory bodies. Uh,
1: Yeah, so great question. And I want to give full credit to Zach and William, who are the co-founders of Plaid, who uh, hired me at the time. I've actually been with Plaid four years. There were like 150 people at the company when I started, which is, I think, relatively early for a policy person to start at a fintech. Um, But I think they had the vision and this goes to Caitlin's point on like how much it matters to have a leader who like really buys into this stuff. Of at the end of the day, Plaid is a financial data portability company, right? We help the consumer move their financial data where they want in order to get the product or service that they think improves their lives and gives them more choices, lower costs, you know, more personalization in their financial services. Um, that means that you need some regulatory structure around that. And we were lucky uh, with Plaid that Congress, you know, back during the financial crisis, created a statute, Dodd-Frank Section 1033, that says consumers have the right to access their financial information. The problem was that's all that it says. It is like 75 words long. It is not a lot of detail about how that works. And so my entire career at Plaid has been Focused on taking that 75 words and getting it built out into the regulatory structure that surrounds that consumer benefit, because at the end of the day, if the consumer is going to rely on infrastructure like Plaid to make their financial life work better, I just I don't believe that that's an unregulated area of the economy. Right? It's it, the right answer is for some regulatory protection to be around that. And so my day to day is. Uh, actually, it's like a dream job for me, because it is looking at the market and saying, what should the regulation around this market be? What's the right thing for the consumer? And now let's go out and get it. And so, you know, the CFPB has uh, 1033 under their jurisdiction. Uh, They recently started moving forward with an advance notice of proposed rulemaking on that. Uh, We filed a 50 plus page comment letter on it. I don't recommend that anyone read it unless you want to get a nap in. Um, But one of the first things we said was Plaid should be uh, supervised. We should be under the supervisory jurisdiction of the CFPB, and that was like, I thought that might be a hard conversation to have with my CEO of like, hey, we're going to go ask to be regulated because it's the right thing. It was like a 15 minute conversation. Like, well, why do we want to do this? Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, go ahead and we should be regulated, like that makes sense to me. Um, now, my day-to-day gets a little bit more complicated than that, because I'm not allowed to only like think about one thing all the time as much as I want to. Um, you know, as fintech has grown, as more things have come around it, as we have things like, you know, Fed now and instant payments coming around the corner, thinking about how consumer data, you know, that has been moving on the ACH system with a three-day delay over the last 50 years is going to work in a instant data and instant payment environment. Those are real challenges and you get to like think around the corner for what those are, um, which is always fun because everyone else at Plaid works on sort of two week tech sprints. And I work on like five to six year rulemaking cadence and getting to marry the two week cadence to the five year cadence. People will be like, yeah, so like, where's 1033? All right. Same place it was two weeks ago. Okay, but we'll check in in two weeks and you'll let us know where it is. I'm like, yeah, I definitely, definitely will. I'll let you know exactly where it <laughs> is, which is the same place. Um, so that's that's what I get to do. And I think it's fantastic. Like, everyone should get to have a job like this at a fintech. It's so interesting because
2: we're talking about just such different spans of how long-term in, in, of, of a thinker you can be. And that's really hard because everyone has sort of their short-term priority set, but wants to be sort of innovative and forward-looking, but it's hard to sort of build out that muscle. And so I'd be curious, you know, John, you were saying that Plaid was very early to adopt a head of policy. When do you, when? or I'll skew first, John, but also Caitlin, definitely weigh in. When is it appropriate to build out sort of a, a standalone policy or regulatory function within sort of a
1: startup company? So I think it's going to be different for every company, but I think you should build into your plan that you're going to hit that moment at some point based on what you're doing. And we've talked a little bit about the regulatory perimeter. And I want to tell like one very quick anecdote here, which is like the per- regulatory perimeter is not a new concept. Aaron Burr helped found a company in the 1700s that was delivering water to lower Manhattan. And their charter said they're going to deliver water. And with any excess money, they'll like, do some financial services stuff. They never actually delivered any water or built any water pipes. They only did financial services. The name of that company was the Manhattan Water Company, which later became the Manhattan Bank, which later became JPMC, right? So like, they started outside of the regulatory perimeter and are now dead center of the regulatory perimeter. And that is the journey that every fintech should expect. Whether or not you're outside right now, you will be inside and you want to have a policy person well before that moment because you want to be thinking with that mindset of, what do we owe the consumer? What do we owe the regulator? How do we make this all work properly? So as long as you know that that's a thing you're going to do, I, I, there's no magic number of like once we've got 75 employees, we need a head of policy, but you need a plan for when you're bringing that on. And I think it's earlier than most fintechs think.
3: Yeah, I'll just I think it's it's so fun to to talk about this, and I'll just make a plug for kind of you know. Working on this issue from inside of a regulator is is really exciting as well because like if we all presume again we presume good intent we assume the perimeter is going to be expanded to capture something that impacts consumers and that needs to be you know have those protections around it figuring out how our existing structures which were basically created about the time right that that <laughs> water pipes were being built in Lower Manhattan um, it is really fascinating. And so to think about, you know, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, working with John and thinking about plaid and data aggregation in my career, like thinking about right, what is the regulatory framework for this type of entity, right? It's a service provider to a lot of financial services. It's an infrastructure play. Is it systemic in terms of its risk? You know, obviously we have consumer impacts. Like we don't have kind of a data regulator in the United States. We have this kind of patchwork. And so just thinking about uh, that is is really interesting. And that's kind of the fun part of what innovators do inside of regulators. That's not always the kind of change management slog of, of getting the message out, but really like a puzzle, basically, and, and figuring out where innovative companies fit.
2: I want to completely zoom out because we're running out of time. But I'm just so curious both of your takes on what do you think has been the most transformative piece of policy? You know, we talk about things that are still sort of ruling over 40, you know, maybe four decades, um, you know, into the future or from the past. What what is what have you seen has sort of forced the most change? If there's sort of one piece of
1: regulation that comes to mind.
3: That's a hard one.
1: <laughs> so, so can I do one that has not actually made that change yet, but is Let's going to? plug it. All right. So it's Dodd-Frank 1030 for it, <laughs> right? Like, a surprise answer for everyone listening. I know no one expected me to say that. But um, open banking, the idea that your financial data doesn't just sit in one place, that you have the ability to move it around, I think that is going to be fundamentally transformative to the financial uh, world. And we've already seen a lot of that transformation happen. So- uh, as of this year, 80% of consumers are using a fintech app. And post-pandemic, the number of apps that each consumer is using has gone up, right? And is continuously going up. So what you are seeing is a new world where the consumer is at the center of their financial life, and they are getting individual services from lots of different providers and sort of building their own bank around themselves. That's a really different way for the consumer to engage with financial services. It's much more open, it's much more inclusive, like the numbers in terms of fintech usage for uh, black, Latino, minority women versus men, like it's much more equal, much more open, much more egalitarian than the traditional financial services world has been. And it's because there's more innovation and more competition. All of that is resting on this foundation of consumer sovereignty over their data. And so I think we are like in the first inning of that transformation. I think it is going to be massively impactful.
3: Yeah, I'll I'll also take John's tack. And I think asking about the most innovative or kind of influential regulation, right, it's asking a regulator to pick favorite children. So so I'll I'll think about, you know, also forward looking like John did and and add to it. And again, kind of my my research and passion area has always been data. And um, I would say, you know, I think in the future, I would like to see, and I think it would be fundamentally transformative, a horizontal kind of data regulation that goes beyond open banking, beyond open finance. And, you know, for me, beyond just privacy, right? How do we use and harness data in a way that's protective of consumers um, and who regulates that space? I think that would be fundamentally transformative for tech because it's really, again, cross-cutting, you know, not just financial services, not just, in you know, health, it's everything.
2: I think it's a great answer and totally applies. So we're, we're basically out of time. But I want to leave the audience with this, which is, you know, John, you were mentioning that some of these projects that you undertake are a six to eight year sort of marathon. But, you know, we're at Money 2020. This is always a really amazing time capsule event where, you know, next year at this very time, what do you want to see that's changed? Um, I think that's a little bit of a different time horizon than you're typically focused <laughs> on. So what, what can we expect in sort of the more immediate term?
1: Um, What are you excited for? So to me, the most exciting thing is faster payments. Right? We've been on a slow payment system in the United States relative to the world for decades at this point. Um, What the Federal Reserve and the Clearinghouse are doing in speeding up the payment system, I think, is also going to be transformative in terms of how much friction it removes for the consumer. I cannot wait to be here next year where money is just moving faster through the ecosystem with more control from the consumer. I can't wait for it.
3: Yeah, I'll say, I mean, I, I live and breathe virtual currency right now. So I'll say I'm I'm excited for next year when, you know, I think we'll continue to see the maturity of this industry. I think we'll continue to see the regulation of this industry. And I'm excited to see where it goes.
2: Well, I'm excited to just keep following the content that you both put out because I think it's crucial to sort of, again, permeating this, this information throughout the rest of the ecosystem. So thank you both for being here with us um, and providing your unique perspectives, which I think we can all come away with knowing or, much more closely you know, linked um, than some folks might, might believe. So thank you both for providing your perspectives. Thanks again to Zach for hosting this time. And uh, thanks, everyone, for being in the room today.
1: Thank you.
0: All right. I hope that was helpful. Thanks again to Allie for stepping in and doing a better job than me, as usual. To learn more about Allie, Caitlin, and John, take a gander at them, their show notes. And as the responsible podcast host I am, I must remind you to subscribe, rate, review, all those special things. And if you want our weekly-ish becoming more regular emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I love you all.